and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. So excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you might be able to help us out here at the podcast. First of all, thanks for being here. Thanks to those of you who have shared these conversations on social media. It really does help us as we continue to try to build this thing out. Also, if you feel inclined, inspired, feel like this conversation is helpful and knowledgeable for you, you can give to the podcast by going over to patreon.com slash intentional performers. Once again, that's patreon.com slash intentional performers. And over there, you can give as little as $2 a month and as much as $10 a month. Thanks to everybody who has already done so, and we will continue to try to build this thing out and make it as strong as possible. Now to today's guest. Lee Summers is somebody who I got introduced to a few years ago, and ever since, I've been able to work with some of his clients as a strength and conditioning coach, and he's worked with some of my clients as a mental performance coach, and I believe in Lee. I think he does amazing work, and he truly cares about his clients. You're going to hear that today. He is somebody who's a servant leader, somebody who wants to make his athletes and his clients as strong as they possibly can be, and he's worked with the the tip-of-the-arrow athletes, most notably Katie Ledecky, who by many accounts is considered to be the best swimmer of all time is one of the best athletes of all time and lee started working with katie when she was 15 years old he also works with pro tennis players he works with all kinds of athletes at different levels but he's really carved out a niche for himself locally in the washington dc area working with elite swimmers and If you don't know, Washington, D.C. has become quite a hotbed for swimmers, and he represents and works with teams uh, in a number of different areas in the swimming community. Also, Lee is somebody who will share his journey today. He'll share how he ended up becoming a strength coach at a really young age and working at a gym, Sport and Health, which is a really well-respected gym in the D.C. area, and helped build out their explosive performance program that works with elite athletes. So I know you're going to love Lee sharing his mindset, sharing some of the mindsets that he's been able to witness and observe over the years. And without further ado, I'm excited to present to you Lee Summers. Lee, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We first got introduced, I forgot about this, from Mark Morris, who uh, raved about you and connected the two of us. And ever since then, we've had a couple of different conversations over the years about the mindset needed for athletes and your experience working with elite athletes. And so I'm really excited to chat with you and get your perspective, but also get to know you better. Uh, I feel like I know you, but I don't really know you. So hopefully I'm getting to know you a little bit today as my listeners are, and I'm excited to see where that goes. So where I'd love to start is to get some insight into what life was like for you as a kid. So take us all the way back there. It's not all the way. It's some of the way back there. But let's go back to your childhood. What was life like for you as a kid? Uh, I grew up in New York City um, on the Upper West Side um, for the first nine years of my life. Um, Went to private school there. Um, Really uh, enjoyed New York City. Didn't know how good I had it or what, you know, all the great things I was exposed to living in the city. Um, but by the time I got to about eight, nine years old, uh, my parents realized that it wasn't the best place 
to to raise a son, you know, to let him go out and play and enjoy life and, you know, go play sports. Um, you know, it was constantly, you know, you live in the city, you have to keep constant eyes on your kid. Uh, so we moved to Maryland um, when I was nine. And, um, you know, it was, you know, in some in some ways, one of the best things that ever happened because it allowed me, you know, so much exposure to sports and to uh, a lot of things that I wouldn't have had exposure to in the city. Uh, while I do miss it and I still identify as a New Yorker. Um, so I moved to Maryland when I was nine, uh, immediately started picking up sports. Um, you know, I had been playing, you know, kind of recreationally in the neighborhoods of New York, but you know, when got to Maryland, uh, you just have so much more access to leagues and teams. And, um, so started playing baseball, uh, but then eventually found, you know, my real love, which was basketball, um, started playing that at 11 played, you know, through middle school, high school, um, and attempted to play in college. Um, but you know, had a, had a blast really sports was always kind of my, my biggest love. Um, uh, again, especially basketball. Any, uh, any siblings? Nope. Just me. So you and mom and dad and what did mom and dad do for a living? What, what were they like? Uh, mom did medical transcription. Um, she worked with doctors at, uh, Shady Grove, mostly at Shady Grove hospital, uh, in and around there. Uh, my dad was a deli worker, uh, his whole life worked in a place called Zabar's in New York, which is pretty famous in New York. Uh, moved here, kind of bounced around a little bit at different places, and then decided that uh, working um, in New York was still going to be best for our family. So he would go back and forth um, and, you know, kind of frequently, you know, take the train or a bus back and forth, you know, every other week. Um, so he was around less, uh, but it was kind of what, what they felt was, was best for the family. And what values did mom and dad pass down to you? Um, you know, number one was hard work. Um, you know, my dad was, you know, worked at Zabar's as a deli worker, probably on average worked about 70 to 80 hours a week. Um, and even as he got on onto the older side, he, you know, he struggled with emphysema, um, still was working 60 to 70 hours a week as a 70 year old um, man with emphysema. I uh, just didn't know how to to hit the hit the brake pedal at all. Um, so, you know, that was that was the biggest thing I took from my parents um, was, you know, hard work it was was kind of priority number one um were they modeling that or were they also talking about it obviously you said he was modeling it but was it something that was also mentioned to you uh verbally no no it was um it was more of a uh lead by example type of thing um you know it was never actually you know talked about other than you know schoolwork make sure your schoolwork gets done schoolwork is most important before sports um that had to be a priority um, but other than that, no, it was never, you know, work hard, work hard. You know, you work hard to get the American dream. It was never like a rah-rah speech. Um, it was more of a, you work hard because that's what you're supposed to do. Um, and I, I, I try to model that for my children. Um, but at the same time, I do want them to understand there there are other things other than work in life, um, which I feel, I'm sure we'll get to this at some point, is the beauty of, of my new venture and my new endeavor in, in uh, my career, where it allows me to not always be all about work and I can really spend a lot more time being a present and, you know, very, um, active father. Um, because I think them feeling the love and feeling like they are truly a priority and truly important, um, is kind of the most important thing I can do. When you were growing up and dad was taking the bus or the train up to New York, how did you make sense of that as a kid? I don't know. Um, it was just expressed to me as that's where dad could make the best living and support us and, you know, in the way that, that we, you know, that we wanted, um, you know, would I have wanted him to be around for, for more of the games and more of the stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it was just something that just kind of came naturally cause it's what I knew. Um, and, um, so it was mostly my mom and I, you know, going through the day to day stuff. Did you think that he was sacrificing for the family back then? Did you have an understanding of that? Or were you just like, dad's not here and I wish he was? Yeah, I, I don't know that I was uh, self-aware enough to think that dad was sacrificing. Now that, you know, I have my own children, I understand what sacrifice is. And I understand how putting them first is is, is a challenge. But it's something that, you know, I take a lot of pride in. Uh, and I kind of feel like that was what was happening at the time now that I can look back on it. And did mom and dad have a good relationship? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. They uh, stay together? They did. They did. Um, you know, it was, you know, there was um, times where it was challenging for them. You know, they stayed together, I think probably for me as the child, um, which, 
you know, I can appreciate. And at the same time, I don't know that it's always the best life decision. Um, I would advise against that if, if, you know, I had a friend or a family member who um, was thinking about staying in a relationship that wasn't ideal for the kids. I don't know that the kids benefit from that. Um, but that's my own personal opinion. Maybe has my own biases built in. And you mentioned education and them stressing, hey, you're going to work hard in school as well. Were they educated? And what was their background in relationship with education? Uh, both of them graduated from high school. Neither graduated from college. Um, my dad did do some work uh, in, a, in accounting. Um, he, you know, he did a bunch of different things, um, owned uh, a fro- one of the first frozen yogurt shops in Queens, you know, long before I was born. Um, but um, education was something that they stressed because they wanted something better for me. I think that's, you know, we all want, you know, our kids to have, you know, be able to, to have what we don't and to be able to do things for themselves that, that maybe we couldn't and, and strive for more than we were able to accomplish. And that's, I think that's just being a parent. So to summarize that dynamic, that relationship, it sounds like mom and dad were both working, working hard to try to give you an opportunity to potentially go to college and, and go experience things that maybe they didn't or that they couldn't. Would that be a... Absolutely. Okay, cool. And when you're nine years old and you're moving from New York City to, I, I don't know where you moved to Maryland, but I know that it's not New York City. What was that transition like for you as a nine-year-old? Uh, it's funny. I always tell the story. You know, I grew up in New York City, very insulated. Like you think of New York City as this big place. But for me, New York City was literally just like six square blocks where my school, my dad's work, uh, our condo, uh, Hudson Park, Central Park were all there. And that was my world. It was like a little neighborhood. So when my parents told me that we were going to go to Maryland and move to Maryland, I, I was like, what language do they speak there? Like, I really had no under I was not worldly for, you know, I was just like the city kid who was you know, super insulated. Um, so it was a big transition. But, you know, the freedom that it gave me when I came and it was like, oh, go out and play, go out and, you know, play touch football or go, go play with your friends. It's like, well, where are you going to be? I was so like confused by the whole the whole concept. Um but like I said, it was a great move. Uh, and at the same time, every time I go back to New York, I do still feel like, eh, I wonder what life would have been like if I had just stayed here. Yeah, both my brothers live on the Upper West Side, so I've been in Zabar's many a time, un- unfortunately for my belly. Uh, but they have amazing stuff. Is it still, I think it's still there. Or they? I know there was yeah. like, did it close? No, nope. it's actually a New York um, City registered landmark, historical landmark. I just went back for the first time um, in years uh, maybe it was around my birthday, so about six months ago. Um, and and it, the interesting thing as far as my, my father has since passed, which I didn't mention, um, his ashes are actually in a pl- uh, in a planted or potted plant in Zabar's in the offices there. That's how that's how much he identified with Zabar's. And you know, if you look at there, I have a couple of like New York picture books where you can see Dad in the Zabar's hat. You know working. Um, so when I go back there, it still chokes me up. I still get very emotional. Uh, the last time prior to this past time, when I went back, there was guys that he worked with for years who, upon seeing me literally just, you know, grown men just burst into tears and had to leave work. Um, so it's, I go back and every time I go in there, I have to kind of prepare myself for that. Where do you feel it? Because I can tell right now you're even feeling it. Yeah, I just get choked up in the throat. And, you know, so this last time when I went back in September, I didn't see any of the guys that my dad used to work with. I hope they're all well. Uh, but I was nervous about seeing them because I, you know, didn't really want to have that reaction as much as it, it's probably healthy for me to go have that experience. Um, but, yeah, I still do. I feel it every time I walk in. And, and what does that sense of feeling give you? Like, wh- try to go uh, maybe underneath the actual emotion and, and what does it actually do for you uh, knowing that your dad's there? Um, yeah, there? There's a degree of pride again and just the work ethic and the type of guy he was and the fact that people can have that emotion upon seeing a guy's son means that he meant something to them, um, which means something to me. Um, and yeah, it makes me miss him, but um, it feels good. It's a, it's a weird it's a strange feeling. How long ago did he pass? Oh, it's got to be eight years. I'm, I don't remember the year. Um, I want to say it was eight years ago. And how did you handle that? It was hard. Um, knew it was coming. Um, he, when I moved him back from New York officially, um, where he was not going to work anymore, he was just going to live in Maryland with my mom. Um, that was... They told him he had six months to a year, 
and he wound up living for almost five years beyond that point. Wow. Um, and he got to meet, meet his grandson and spend time with his grandson. Uh, well, my son doesn't remember that. My dad does. And that was, that was special. That meant something. Um, so he was a tough guy to the end. There wasn't, you know, he wasn't just going to give up, even though stopping working, you know, challenged him and challenged the disease. Was your relationship with him better as you became an adult than maybe when you were a kid? I don't know, I don't know about better, different. Um, you know, when you have that relationship with your dad where, you know, I still remember days where my dad would put me on his shoulders and, you know, walk me to, you know, walk me to school. And, you know, it was very childlike and very still, you know, uh, looking up to my dad. And as I got older, he was less of a hero to me as, as I look back on it. And now he's a hero again to me based off of, um, you know, the work ethic um, and, you know, what he did for the family. Um, you know, you go through those those ebbs and flows as far as, you know, how how you you know, perceive that relationship. But you just painted a different picture than what I had originally, which is you're also saying that dad was present when he was home. So even though he had to go up to New York, when he did come home, he put you on his shoulders. He would try. That was, that was more while we lived in New York when I was younger. So I would say, you know, so you have those memories of him. Yeah. Yeah. When you're really younger and you're looking up to him. And then you also have these memories of him being gone a lot. Um, And then as you get older, you sort of have this respect factor that these other co-employees have for him and knowing that he was actually really valued um, at his craft, at his job, uh, and somebody that was a big part of this big name, uh, almost his big brand, and he was driving that bus in some capacity. Yeah. Very cool. And mom, uh, mom's still around? Yeah, mom's still around. Uh, very present grandmother. Um, she's you know a godsend for me as far as being a single dad, she's around, she's present, she's able to help me. Uh, the kids love her, and um, it's um, it's it's another relationship that that's growing. Um, as 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 I become a parent, and as I start to gain more respect for all the things that she did for me, she wasn't a single parent, but like I said, you know, for the majority of my elementary and middle school years, she was the one who was mostly doing everything as the you know the parental unit. Um, I have a greater appreciation for that now that I'm a parent trying to do the same thing. And you mentioned uh, wanting to play college basketball. What happened there? You sort of hinted like, oh, I thought I would, but maybe it yeah, wasn't meant you to know, me. I went to Temple University, um, and Temple at the time was a powerhouse in the country. John Cheney was the coach. You know, you know, look, I'm a five foot nine kid, uh, so I was going to play point or nothing. Well, our point guard was Pepe Sanchez. <laughs> he's he's pretty good. He's you know his numbers retired at Temple. Uh, it was a team that had Lynn Greer, who was the all time leading scorer, and you know the the history of the Philadelphia Public That's the Public team League. I think of when I think of Temple. Yeah, you have the Aaron McKee, uh, Eddie Jones, Mark Jackson team. That was right before, before yeah, my time. Yeah, right before I went there. And then when I was there, you had the guards were Pepe Sanchez, Lynn Greer, Quincy Wadley, uh, Rashid Brokenborough. Like it was, it was a stacked team. And awesome college basketball players. Like those guys you mentioned from that previous team were were really good pros. Yeah, but I remember that backcourt and just being like, these guys are really good college basketball players. Yeah, and they were all. I would want to say they were all four-year guys. Like no one left early. Maybe Lamont Barnes left early at, at Power Forward and didn't do much with it. But and did you try to walk on? Or I did, and it was didn't go well. No, <laughs> didn't help that I lived in a fraternity house where, yeah, John Cheney is famous for five a.m. practices, and living in a fraternity house didn't bode well for my chances. He, but he, I, he I don't think that's the out. only thing. <laughs> he I don't, you out yeah, I don't think that's the only thing that helped me back. Yeah. But you were always a basketball guy and, and love basketball. Uh, what did you study when you were at Temple? Uh, when I was at Temple, I studied uh, finance and economics. Um, and then I had to leave because family couldn't afford out-of-state tuition anymore. Uh, I moved back home for six months and then wound up going to Towson University and finishing there. And I got a degree in sports management, uh, which was an exercise science and kinesiology degree. What was that like for you, leaving Temple, you're in a fraternity house, you're studying finance and economics, and then you have to transfer to, to Temple, uh, sorry, to Towson uh, for financial reasons? What, what was that like for you? It was hard. I understood it. I also probably wasn't getting the most out of my education, which if, if I was the parent of me back then, I would have just pulled out. I would have, I would have pulled my kid out because I, w- I was partying hard and having lots of fun, and I loved it. It was hard to leave because I left some amazing friends, you know. You know, when I wound up getting married, you know, three or four of my groomsmen and my best man were all my fraternity brothers. Like, um, 
it was, you know, it was tough, but I, I think it was necessary for my life. I, I think it was, a, it wound up coincidentally being a good move. What, what year were you? Junior, my third year at Temple. Okay. And at the time, were you upset about it? I mean, it sounds like it. Yeah, but I mean, I wasn't upset with my parents that they couldn't afford it or, you know, I was upset just that I had to leave, but, you know, it wasn't angry at anyone in particular. And you said you went to Towson and then you started studying sports. Sports management. And what was the thought there as far as switching your major? Well, when I moved back, I needed to work while I was kind of in my um, kind of little break period. Uh, and I wound up being a personal trainer. Um, oh, wow. So, all right. So having to transfer for financial reasons, that is actually a watershed moment for you because it introduces you to what you end up doing. Yeah, I, went, I was doing it a little bit at Temple. Uh, I was working in a gym. I had a bunch of jobs while I was in school. Um, but one of them was working in a gym. Um, and I went in to do an interview with the Bally Total Fitness that was opening in the Kentlands in Gaithersburg. Uh, and I went into the trailer before they opened. I went to interview, and I'm a college kid. Went to interview for like a sales job. And um, then the guy told me what the hours were going to be. And I was like, uh, I can't do that. I'm going to be a student. Um, and he's like, well, why don't you try personal training? You're fit. You seem like you know what you're doing. You can go get certified. I was like, that sounds interesting. Um, and that's what I wanted to go to school for was exercise science. So you knew, you knew that at that point? Yeah, I didn't know exactly where it was going to take me, okay. um, but I did know that that was, that was a path. You know, If I couldn't be the athlete, at some point I wanted to help the athlete. So even at Temple, you were going to the gym, staying fit. You, you valued taking care of your body in that sense. Yeah, I was working out a great deal. Okay. Uh, so at Bally's, you start doing personal training? Start doing training there. Um, then when I start at Towson, um, I start working at that gym there, and I'm doing a full-time course load at Towson and doing a, a full-time job as a personal trainer, uh, at the Towson Valleys, uh, which was, which was great. Cause it kept me arguably it kept me out of trouble. It kept me from partying too hard and everything else. Um, but it also started to, uh, segue me into, into my career. So your temple experience, very different than your Towson experience. Yes. And so you start to actually think now career wise, making money, I'm sure the making the money and seeing the money come in also was probably something that was motivating for you as well. Yeah, it, it was time to start, you know, kind of capitalizing on that work ethic that the parents had instilled, I think. Um, so it was, you know, it was a challenge to be full time course load and full time, you know, staff or employee. Um, but it literally set me up, you know, I did a, I would say I did a, for a kid who didn't really know much, as far as I'm concerned, looking back on it now, I did a really good job of building up a clientele. So by the time I graduated from Towson, Bally's was already promoting me to be a director of training. Um, and they promoted me back to the club where I started. So I moved back to Gaithersburg and they put me as the fitness director, the operations manager at their Kentlands club where I had started. So I don't know if you've connected these dots or thought about it, but I'm thinking about your relationship with money and you've got, you know, your dad traveling back and forth to New York to try to provide for the family. You've got having to leave school uh, because of money. And then you've got while you're then it, at school, you start bringing money in and start realizing like I could set myself up pretty well. How do you think about your relationship with money today? Uh, money's important. Uh, it's not the end all be all. Uh, you know, I, you know, when I originally went to, to college, I went to, you know, ideally be an investment banker, stockbroker. Uh, I had done an intern, a couple of internships with some investment banking firms, some stockbroker uh, firms, uh, one here in Bethesda and then one also in Philadelphia. Uh, if money had been the prime driver, I would have stayed in that field. Um, not going to be, you know, not going to be a wealthy man doing what I do, uh, it, depending on how you gauge or, or measure wealth. Um, but financially I'm, you know, my goal is to always be stable and always make sure that I can provide what I want to provide, uh, for my kids, for my family, and hopefully for my retirement at whatever age that's going to be. Um, and I, you know, I, I do want to be compensated well for what I do because I believe I do it well. Um, but you know, I, I feel that, you know, my parents worked real hard for not a lot. Um, it was enough, you know, it was, you know, it got us where we, we needed to be and we were, you know. My parents saved quite a bit. They weren't big spenders, um, which was smart. You know, definitely, you know, I think they had a better um, understanding of of how to set themselves up well and still take care of 
um, what they need to take care of at the time. You know, what you just said really resonates with me because I went to Syracuse University and a lot of the kids that I was friends with were studying finance and it was kind of like a pipeline. Like they're going to go to Syracuse four years, graduate either with econ, finance, they had an entrepreneurship program. But most of those kids were saying, hey, I'm going to go and, and work in New York. And it was I was always amazed because I was someone who I just had no idea what I wanted to do, but I knew it wasn't going to be that. And at that time, I was probably interested in maybe teaching or coaching or something in service. And uh, I remember being like, yeah, money is not really a driver for me. And as I got older and started to get into my career, money became more and more important to me. And I think there is a misconception that just because you're you're in the business of serving others doesn't mean that money shouldn't also be important to you. And you can do both. And I think a lot of times people in your field, in my field, they get into it because they want to help people and there's a desire to help people, but then they shy away from this idea of also valuing the work that they do. And because of that, they end up not getting to do the work that they do. And I, I've come to a realization and I'm still working on it, um, that money does matter. And it's important and it, it's important that you value yourself. Um, and then it also creates freedom and autonomy to choose what work you want to do and what work you don't want to do. And your story resonates because this idea that, oh, like money doesn't matter. When we say that, it, it, it well, it does because your dad had to go back and forth between cities in order to try to make the money. And he was working his ass off, but he was working his ass off at a craft that had a limited potential as far as what he could earn. And there's nothing wrong with that. And different people take different routes and different paths. But for me, at least it was really important that I try to find a profession, at least as I got older that yes, um, I could serve, I could do what I love. Uh, I was, it was fulfilling to me, and as I got older, the financial component started to become more and more valuable to me. And I love what you said. It's not the primary thing, but just because it's not the primary thing doesn't mean it still can't be a driver. And we have lots of things that motivate us. And it's never just one thing. Ideally, it's, it's multiple things. And so as I hear your story, that part really resonates with me. And for people that are listening to this that might be in that service industry, um, I think we're going to get into what you're trying to do and how you're thinking about your business. But it's a conversation that I don't shy away from. And I think too many people are afraid to get into the money conversation because from a young age, we're sort of taught like, oh, don't talk about money and, and this, that, and the other. But it's important, especially for people that are in your field or in my field, uh, because if you can create that, then you can truly do what it is that you want to do. Yeah. I know I, I, I went on a little bit of a rant there, so I'd love to get your thoughts on any of it. Yeah, you know, I, I have friends who uh, are amazing people who have chosen to do things where they make a lot of money and are miserable at work. Every day they hate going to work. That was never going to be me. Um, and by the way, props to them if that's what they're choosing to correct. do. If they're saying, I want to do this so I can retire at 40 or 50 and set my family up and that's a driver, as long as there's intention behind it and it's not just mindless, which right. some people are mindless when they're doing it. And that's their sacrifice, right? That, but that's, that's their choice. You know, I don't, you know, they're not choosing whatever the thing is that they love to do for a living. They chose to do what they're doing in order to make the money that they're making. I just, I was never going to be able to do that. And it's, when you talk about modeling something for your kids, that'll be one of the messages that I want to send to my kids is choose something that you love. Life, life isn't long. It's short. You, sh I mean, the majority of the time that we spend sadly in our lives is, is working. So you better love, you better love what you do. You better, you know, there, there will be challenges every day. Won't be perfect, but I love what I do. I never wake up in the morning, even if it's 4am to go work with kids who want to, you know, train at 5am. I never wake up and go, crap, I got to go to work today. This is going to be miserable. Um, and I think that's really important because you spend so much time working uh, that you should get enjoyment out of it. You should get fulfillment out of it. Um, you know, I think that's, for me, that was very important. But I, I don't think that's, the, you know, the majority of people don't make that decision. Um, and that's okay. Um, it just wasn't going to be me. Yeah, I, I think there's there's multiple messages, right? Follow your passion is something we hear a lot. Great. But but you should look in the mirror and, and really do the the work to say what is what is it that's really my driver? What is it that's really motivating me? And as I said, I think for some like it, it can be money, and that's that's cool as long as it's your choice. 
in what you're doing and what you're willing to do. You mentioned investment banking. I have friends that do that. You know, they're getting home at 11 o'clock at night and then they're starting over again at 7 a.m. And, uh, you know, that's, but as long as it's their choice and it's a, it's not a mindless decision, fine. Um, so I, like one of the things that I think is the message that I try to provide with the limited knowledge and experience that I have is, really just being intentional. And there's a reason why this podcast is called Intentional Performers because as long as you're being intentional and you know why you're doing what you're doing, cool. It's when we lack intention with our process or with our systems or with our, and I'm sure strength strength training is very similar. It's like, what are you trying to get out of this? What's the goal here? Really being intentional about, we were talking on the couch before we fired up the microphones. You know, are you trying to get mobility? Are you trying to build strength? Being intentional with your process allows you to achieve what it is that you want to achieve. So as I go back to your story, you're now at, you're finishing up at Towson. You now have a big job um, right out of college. And um, you're, it sounds like you're not just training people, but are you also managing people then? Or what is that like for you right out of college? Yeah, that was, um, the, the, the job right out of college was you're going to go manage a group of trainers. That The position at the time was real funky. It was you're in charge of training and that was the major you had a salary but the majority of what you did was going to be on growing the personal training business for the club um, but i was also in charge of the pro shop and you know selling products i was in charge of the cleaning staff which which by the way none of them spoke english um i was in charge of the group exercise program someone reported to me in that regard and so it was it was a big job probably too big for for any one person let alone some kid who was just getting out of college how would you handle it um, I mean, I put the priority on the training cause that was what my expertise was, but you know, it was, it was a growing experience to be able to, you know, manage people in a lot of regards, you know, and have to do, you know, cleaning audits where, you know, is, is this corner of the club clean? Okay. Show, you know, get on the floor, grab, you know, grab a washcloth and show someone how to clean something or a mop or show someone that you're willing to go clean toilets. Did you have a failure at that job that you remember that stuck with you as you progressed on? Because you're getting thrown into this situation where you're really forced, not forced, you're being asked to manage people. Um, it sounds like nothing really before then had had involved that leadership management position. I would imagine there's something there that you maybe didn't do well that you learned from. Um. You know, this will sound cocky. I think I kicked ass at that job. Really? Uh, with Bally. You're um, different than me. I could give my like my my jobs right out of college where I wasn't a manager. Neither one. I was I was in sales. And both of my first two jobs, I could give specific examples. For example, the first one I was selling condos at a building in Bethesda. And this woman walks in and she starts complaining about something. And I go, oh, it's really not that big a deal. Like, you're okay. Like, it's all good. And she walks out. <laughs> a manager calls me to my office. And, I, and she's a really great woman and a good boss. She's like, Brian, you can't talk to a customer like that. Like, she's complaining. You need to listen. You need to hear her. And you need to, like, take that down and say, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. Empathize. Empathize. Yeah. And I was just like a young guy. She wasn't that old. So I was like, thought we were like buddy, buddy. Right. And it was a mistake. And then my next job, I, <laughs> so you'll find a common thread here of me probably speaking my mind too much and, and not, not listening. And uh, my next job, same type of thing. I talked to this guy and he was just a jerk. And I just said, like, I'm doing my job. Like, what else do you want me to do? And I leave. And then he calls my boss to complain and, like one of the other people said, I've never heard any salesperson talk to uh, talk to us like that. And so I, I learned early that like just because I feel emotional and I well, one was an emotional reaction. The other was more of a cognitive uh, in my mind reaction. But I learned you don't need to react like take it in respond in a polite manner and then you can go back to your manager or boss and tell them that this person was being an asshole or this person was being ridiculous but it's not in in that position it's not your place to to do that and it's probably one of the reasons why i ended up going into business for myself where i could make those decisions and live with them and i'm sure i haven't handled things the best i know i haven't always handled things the best but those were lessons that i learned right out of college where i was still very green um still didn't really understand the customer service dynamic and those have served me 
well as I've moved on, but I, man, like I, I, I remember getting talking to from both managers who were really great people. Uh, and just be like, Brian, like you need to really think about how you talk to the customer. Yeah. I think, you know, one thing that I took, actually it was, it, this really set me up for success and, and taking, when you talk about failures, I, you can call them failures if you will, but when I was doing the investment banking stockbroker internships, I was I was tasked with cold calling, just cold calling people all day, 10 hours a day, just calling people, trying to get them to talk to me so that I could pass them on to a senior broker. And out of 100 calls, maybe I got one. If it, it was a successful day, if I got one out of 100. So getting, you know, that's 99 failures and one positive outcome, that was a win. So I had to develop a very thick skin. And... Um, and get used to the word no or being hung up on or whatever it is. Uh, and that's, you know, instead of looking at that as, as a negative, um, it really set me up for success in trying to build a personal training business, both for myself and for others, um, was that I, I, I never feared going out and prospecting the floor or talking to people because if, you know, a bunch of people said no, okay, then you're lost. Um, I'm here for you if, if I can help. And so it, it always, it, it was always weird to me that trainers were afraid to go out and interact with people to go grow, grow their business. Um, so teaching them how to do it, teaching them how to develop a thick skin and how to communicate with people and open lines of communication, um, and then doing it for myself and doing it for them. In addition, showing them like, here, watch me understand. And that was the part that, that was why it was always so, I don't want to say easy, but it, it did come very naturally for me to, to be able to grow a business and, and start to communicate with people who might be a prospective client. It's because I, I, I got so used to hearing no. That, you know, I was an 18-year-old kid trying to talk to multimillionaires about investing with people they had never met. Um, it, really, it really helped me. So taking that negative, uh, and I knew then that that probably wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, it, I took positives from those those losses or those failures. As much as I think all of us hate telemarketers, I did the same thing in college. I did a telemarketing job also at Temple. I <laughs> really hated that one. <laughs> I think telemarketing, though, if you can do it in college as an intern, like I did it as a, I think I was a sophomore going into my junior year. And to your point, to call 50 calls a day or whatever the amount is and to get hung up on and yelled at or berated but to actually like close a deal over the phone without anyone meeting you teaches you like you can do it if you stay with it and you continue to make progress. And I agree with you because for me and my business, people are always like, how do you, how do you build it? How do you grow? And I would say like, you know, a lot of times I just tell someone, Hey, I'd love to work with you or coach you. Or I just keep meeting with people. I know we like we've talked and I just stay with those relationships, keep building, keep building. And I do think a lot of people are afraid because they're afraid of the rejection and what's underneath the rejection is embarrassment. So they're afraid of shame or embarrassment. It's the same reason why a lot of people are afraid to speak in public because there's potential for embarrassment or shame. And so I'm curious though, as you're able to do that right off the bat, right out of college, you have, you're managing others that struggle with that. Is there anything that you did to try to help them unlock that within themselves? Uh, you know, I always think the, the best way to, to help someone along in, in that process is to show them first, show them that it's possible, show them that you're not perfect. And that, you know, if you go up and try and talk to 10 people about helping them on the floor, you're going to get some no's or leave me alone kid or whatever. And that's fine. Um, and that don't take it personally. Um, you be willing to be vulnerable, um, because you're, if you are the type of person that you should be in that job, you're coming from a good place. You're trying to help someone. You're not trying to sell them magazine subscriptions. You're, you're trying to help someone. And if, if they're not receptive to it, okay, maybe they will be another time. You know, it's, it's, it's okay. Um, but then, yeah, we would do staff developments where, you know, we would, we would role play that and try and get people, because if you can role play it with your peers, you can go out and do it with with someone out on the floor, um, or you can do it with someone that you're meeting for the first time in you know like an orientation uh, type of um, dynamic. But there's uh, a thread that I'm now uh, picking up on, which is leading by example. And so, dad, mom led by example. They didn't talk about it. Um, they led by example. When you were managing, you would do the same thing. You'd say, "Okay, watch. I'm going to do this. I'm going to get rejected. I'm human, uh, and watch how I respond to it." When you are training somebody, how much of the work is modeling 
versus explaining to them how something needs to be done. As far as the client? Yeah. Um, you know, different people learn in different ways. Um, so you have to be able to hone in with a client on how they learn, um, how, how they respond, how they, how they get an understanding of something. So is, is it more of an audio thing? Is it more of a visual thing? Is it more of a kinesthetic thing? Um, and different clients are different. You know, you could show someone the same thing 10 times, they don't get it. But if you say it once, they understand it. Normally it's not the audio. It's normally they either have to see it or they have to feel it and you physically cue them in an appropriate manner, obviously. But um, that, you know, you have to, that's part of this job uh, of being a conscious coach um, where you understand how your particular client or athlete learns and physically understands things and then giving them that. And that becomes very tough in a team perspective where, you know, you've got 18 different athletes all training at once. They don't all learn. They don't all understand by listening. Some can't listen if you paid them to do it. Uh, but if you show them, they can do it. Or if you put them in the physical position to do it and then take them through it, they understand it. You mentioned conscious coach. What do you do to make sure that you are being a conscious coach? You know, I, I think that you know, I read a great book uh, that was gifted to me by a friend that I mentioned to you earlier, Zach Cohen, up the street here in Bethesda, who's a great physical therapist. Uh, and it's by Brett Bartholomew. It's called Conscious Coaching. So I kind of stole that word, you know, that, that phrasing. Um, but, you know, Obviously, being present, being attentive uh, is very important, but communicating with your athletes or your clients, getting an understanding of how they're feeling, what they're feeling on a given day, um, you know, understanding, you know, how they're coming to you, meeting them where they are. Not everyone's going to come to you with their A game, 100% ready to roll every day. You have to have an understanding of that and be resourceful, be pliable, um, understand that every day isn't going to be a hundred day, you know, hundred percent max effort day that you have to really, you know, be wear a lot of different hats as a coach in order to do it well. You mentioned earlier that sometimes you have to wake up at 4 a.m. and you never are not excited to go do your job. What are some habits or intentional things that you do to make sure mentally you're at that place of being a conscious coach? You know, it does get me, you know, I've never been a morning person, like waking up at 4 a.m. Me neither, man. It's, it's that part is how do you do that? Um, you know, I never did it up until, you know, I went out on my own and started my own business. Um, and now that I do it, you know, when there's 15 kids who are coming to see you, athletes that are very high performers that want to get their careers to a certain place, and they're waking up at that same time to see you and, and, and go through what you're going to take them through, that means a lot to me. I, I take a lot of pride in that. And um, it, it gets me fired up. I, you know, I walk in the door fired up. I turn on the lights in the place. I get everything up and running. I get things prepared for them. And, and that means a lot to me that, you know, they will, they're never there before me. And I have some kids, they have a 530 session. They're there at 510, wait, you know, ready to go. I don't ever want them beating me there. Um, I want them to, to feel that, you know, their coaches, their coaches right there, right there with them, you know, in the trenches and, and cares that much that, that this is something to be taken seriously. And, and to be focused on. What time do you go to bed? Uh, too late. So you sleep is something that you feel like you need to do a better job with. Yeah, and I, I won't. I just know I won't. Um, it's something that, uh, and I think this is a huge mistake, but I operate on on less than ideal sleep 95% of the time. How many hours? Five. I'm lucky. Okay, so you clearly read up on nutrition, health, and the science now on sleep is like, for recovery and for growth is pretty. Yes. Uh, it is, you know, we talk about our sacrifices that we make. It's the sacrifice that I make, but, um, my mind gets fired up. Like it's hard for me to shut it down and go to sleep. And I know for someone who does what you do for a living, I'm sure you've got a lot of different, you know, meditative and, and a lot of different routines that I should probably be doing. Um, I have a hard time sleeping because my mind really is is firing. I'm so really... do I. Like I like I I I look. I study. I I try to understand everything. It doesn't mean I have mastered everything by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but it is something that is interesting to hear because you, I I would imagine nutrition. Like how 
one to ten, how are you from a nutrition standpoint? <laughs> I have <laughs> I have some friends and 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 colleagues that would tell you I'm a two, really? um, but you know, um, okay. Yeah. But in your world, maybe a two. But in the normal world, yeah, six seven. And I, then I eat a lot of healthy stuff when I drink way too much coffee and and do a bunch of other things. Strength and then strength and conditioning wise, like how much do you do with that? I sadly, it's one area of my life where I, I wouldn't say that I, I I'm poor. But when you talk about leading by example, I'm not putting in the work on myself that I always should because I, I, I've i kind of gotten to this point where I'm going to put my kids first and then I'm going to put my athletes first and then whatever time's left, I'm going to put my relationships first and then whatever time's left will be the time that I spend on myself. So you're so similar to a lot of the CEOs or sport coaches that I work with because there's always this focus outward and I need to be there for them. I need to wake up at four so I can beat them to the gym. I need to make sure, you know, I'll sacrifice my sleep so I'll be there for them, be there for them, be for there for them. And when I work with that population, I always hold the mirror up to them the, themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Because the truth is, like, how much better at your job would you be if you got the right amount of sleep? How much better at your job would you be if you ate a certain way? And by the way, me too. I'm not saying that I've, once again, mastered all this stuff. Uh, but it's things that I'm working toward, right? And I'm working toward adding these into my job because I think it's actually easier for me to continue to go on the treadmill or the hamster wheel and serve, 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 but eventually that'll break uh, or break down. Um, and so I'm always trying to think about how can I put my oxygen mask on first so then I can help others put their oxygen mask on. And I think we have this misnomer of, of selfishness. We think that it's our job is just to serve and just to be selfless and just to be there for others. And I really believe like any relationship, whether it's a marriage or a parent or a coworker or a client, management, whatever it is, I think you have to start from a place of selfishness to be in the best possible position to be selfless. Uh, and so maybe this is a conversation for us to have another day, but I see it so often with high achievers. They're so selfless and giving and giving and giving. And we see this, the place I see it the most is football. Like you see these pro football coaches who sleep in their office. They don't get enough sleep. They are overweight. I mean, you, you've been around coaches, sport coaches, and you know, they don't take care of themselves and then eventually they break or they break down or they have sacrificed, 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 and then there's nothing there. Um, yeah, I think there does have to be a balance. And I think, you know, to some degree, I achieve balance in my life. You know, could I be better at it? Sure. I can look at that, in, you know, intrinsically and, and, you know, see that right away. Uh, but, you know, like this week is a perfect example of, you know, not getting enough sleep and, and, and not doing all the things I need to do. I literally, I have, uh, you know, a professional tennis player that I work with who's in Sweden for the next three weeks, just came back from Sweden after three weeks of being there. Uh, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going back and forth about what she needs to be doing there while, while I'm away from her. Um, you know, I have two of my, my swimmers who are about to go to the Olympic training center to work with the junior national team at a training camp. So writing program for them and, you know, trying to, you know, deliver, deliver that. Um, and then all my work here, and then my kids, and then you know, so on and so forth, and yeah. it, it's a lot. But I mean, it's you know, I, it's all stuff I wouldn't trade. Yeah, I it's wouldn't trade. I wouldn't trade it. I, I also want to make this distinction, which is, uh, you know, balance is like uh, a seesaw, right? And we have equality. And you said something earlier, like you're going to spend most of your time working. Like if you look at your life, like you spend a lot of time working. So I think, at least for me, it's been it's been a sense of freedom to say, okay, maybe it's not balance, it's integration. And how do I integrate so that what I'm doing at home, you know, when I'm at home, I can be home with my kids. It sounds like you do a good job of being present once you get to that place. And then you get energy from that that you can then leverage at work and you have a good day at work and then, okay, you can have a good day at home. So thinking of them as integrated rather, rather than balanced. And I also think that there's a time to sprint and there's a time to jog. And so we don't all have to be sprinters and we don't all have to be marathon runners because the reality is there might be a week that you do have to get only a couple hours of sleep and you might have to really, you have something urgent that is a deadline and has to get done by now. And so I just think that it's important to put in tripwires because if we don't put those tripwires in, then we're just going to keep going and there's that word grind. And like, I, I think 
athletes use the word grind. Every athlete uses it. Swimmers, you've been around all kinds of athletes. Swimmers, say, I just got to keep grinding. Golfers will say, I got to keep grinding. Runners will say, I got to keep grinding. Basketball players will say, I'm on my grind, right? And if we went on Instagram right now, there would be an element of grind. And the issue with grind is that there's no light at the end of the tunnel. You just keep going. You hit your head on the wall, hit the head on the wall. And we talked about grit earlier before we fired up the mics. Uh, I think grit can be a nice distinction between grind and grit because grit passionate perseverance toward long-term goals is healthy but even grit can turn into grind and so i think all of us once going going back to that word intention can we be intentional so that we're not just grinding our way through life Uh, and i think that's the goal and that doesn't mean that we don't love the work that we do but like i think you can work really hard and it doesn't have to be grinding um, so those are just things that I think about on a regular basis. Absolutely. I pretty much agree with everything you just said. I, <laughs> I think that, you know, you take any sport, doesn't matter what it is. There will be times where you have to grind through drills that you don't like or, um, or you know, whatever it is, a hard practice. Um, but at the same time, you understand that, you know, there's there's a reason for it. But the majority of your sport, you should get enjoyment out of, and you understand that's just a piece of it. Everything shouldn't feel like a grind. Every practice, every moment of practice shouldn't feel like a grind. Um, Because then where where are you getting the enjoyment from? You know what's interesting? I'm thinking about your dad, and your dad had to grind. You said sometimes 80-hour work weeks, traveling, but it sounds like when he was at the deli counter uh, and he was at Zabar's like it wasn't grinding at that point. So he, he also had this passion for that job and uh, was also appreciated in in that area. I feel like he enjoyed the people that he worked with and that dynamic while the work was hard. It was manual labor. It was, you know, I feel like he got some enjoyment out of the job and, you know, engaging with people, you know, you'd have famous people come to his deli counter and he'd get a, get a kick out of that. And, um, you know, there's pictures of him and uh, Senator Bill Bradley and he, you know, he loved Bill Bradley, right? Bill Bradley on his Zabar's cap every day. And there was parts of his job that he just really got a kick out. Of. So you were a Knicks fan, but we're not going to go into that. I am. Ne- I've never been slope. a Knicks fan. Really? I, no, I was a, I was a Bulls fan because growing up, I just oh, loved Michael MJ. Jordan. And then when Jordan retired, I said, I'm going to root for one because I, I root for the Giants. I root for the Mets. I needed one local team. So I've been a Wizards fan, <laughs> uh, pain, painfully so. Um, but now I get the added pleasure of one of my colleagues being the head strength coach for the Wizards, which is is amazing and, and really cool. Awesome. So I want to I do want to talk to you about Katie Ledecky because you've been working with swimmers for a long time now, elite swimmers, not just Katie. You mentioned those juniors going to the U.S. training uh, grounds, and so I know you've been around some of the best swimmers in the world, but you've probably been around the best swimmer of all time in, in Katie. Um, and so I'd love for you to just share some of the things that you've been able to observe and witness being around the Michael Jordan of, of swimming. Um, I'll tell you that, um, you know, I started with Katie when she was 15. Um, and I, I knew right away there was just something different. Um, and I got, I, I can look at it now and say, wow, did I get spoiled? Um, what was different? she just had such a different attitude from, from every athlete that I had worked at. I mean, most clients that I worked, she just was a sponge. She just wanted to do whatever you asked of her. Uh, she never questioned anything other than, you know, she might question why this exercise and not that exercise and explain to her. She just wanted to understand what she was doing and how it pertained to swimming. But there was never a questioning of, you know, is this the right thing? You know, why today? There was never an attitude. There was just this this singular focus on getting better. Uh, and, you know, you hear her coach, Bruce Gemmel, talk about it. You hear Coach Greg, Greg Meehan at, at Stanford talk. She just wants to get better every day. She wants to be the first one there. She wants to be the last one to leave. Um, she just never – I've never seen a negative attitude on her for a second. Um, and, you know, we did a – when you talk about mindsets, you talk about intentional performing, uh, we did a, a feature um, – it was a Comcast Sportsnet video uh, interview and feature on her and Michael Phelps. Uh, but our portion of it was they came in, they filmed our, our workout, and they interviewed her, they interviewed me. And one of the things that she said in there, which I try and make all my athletes understand, because some of them will psych themselves out when the actual race comes or the actual match or game comes. Um, and it becomes such a, you know, they, they get stressed out by, you know, this particular race. I'll have kids come to me and say, 
oh, I, I swim all my races great except for the 100 free. I don't know. Something happens in the 100 free and I just buckle or I choke or I get so stressed out. Um, and the the one thing that Katie said in the in the interview that really resonated with me was when I get in the blocks, I no longer care about what happens in that race. I can't control it now. I've done everything that I could possibly do to be prepared for this moment. And whatever the outcome is, it, it, it will be. Um, I've literally done everything I could do. I've left it all out there. I've done all the work. I've done the dry land, the strength and conditioning, the practice, the eating, the sleeping, the hydrating. I've done everything I could possibly do to be ready for this moment. So now this moment will be what it's going to be. Um, and I'm just going to go do my thing. Um, and that's a really hard thing to do. But I feel like if you go in with that mindset and you actually do everything you need to do to lead up to that moment, which is another subject, some people think they do everything they need to do, but they missed out on certain pieces of the puzzle or they didn't give 100% during a particular facet of, of that uh, equation. Um, but if you can really honestly say to yourself, I did everything I could possibly do to be ready for this moment, the moment is no longer too big for you because you're prepared and you know you're prepared. And so if someone beats you on that day, that's because they beat you, not because you didn't do everything you needed to do. So a lot to unpack. The one place I'll start is, so it sounds like she's very humble in her preparation. She's always trying to get better. What can I do differently? What can I do here and there? But I actually talked to Bruce, her, her coach, about her, uh, and he said she also has this inner sense of belief in herself that even if we ask her, like, they had some meter race. She had done, she had qualified for this, qualified for that. And then he, he said to her, like, yeah, you know, you don't need to necessarily, like, get to this time in that race. And she looked at him and was like, are you kidding? Like, Are you saying I can't do that? Yeah. And all right. So now, like, I'm not going to get in the pool without, like, believing that I'm going to go. It doesn't matter how tired I am or how anything I am. Like, I'm going to still do it. So she has this inner sense of belief or inner confidence or arrogance or whatever you want to call it. Have you witnessed that with her? And, and where do you think that comes from for her? I, I don't know. You know, I said, to, and I don't even know if, it, if her parents remember it. I said it to, to her mom that I would pay to take parenting classes from, from the Ledeckis, from Mary Jen Ledecky specifically, because I have a lot of, I've had a lot more communication with her than with dad, uh, because they raised a daughter who's just incredibly humble, incredibly grounded, and nothing's too big for her. Her highs aren't incredibly high. She, you know, her lows, you know, her, whatever her tough times are, you don't really ever feel them because she's just incredibly level and grounded. But um, she also has this inner, like, uh, competitor or this inner, like, fierceness to her. Like, she wanted to break the record like i've read about her like she's like no like i'm gonna not just break it but i think i can actually smash it there's you don't see it on the outside because no. she comes off as so humble and i was at a bruce springsteen concert in nats park one time and i looked to my left and there's katie ledecky like just hanging out in the infield and she's at stanford being a college kid like like yeah so the beauty is you no one will ever mistake her for cocky no, um, but she. Yeah, but she, inside, there, there's this inner sense of she has a, a great deal of confidence. Yeah. Um, so, wh where does that come from? Do you think? I don't know. I don't know. I I know that you know. I believe she was raised very very well, um, and I think she's a very good person who um, believes in herself um, and believes that if you know she sets a goal, there's no reason not to accomplish that goal. Now I'm going to go and do that. Um, and you know, part, part of it does go back to work ethic, which we've been talking about, you know, pretty much this whole time that she enjoys, she really embraces the journey and embraces the process and wants to get better. And, and, um, she loves the work. Like, you know, I've gone out to Stanford a couple of times now, uh, to go, you know, work with them a little bit and consult. And, um, you know, she, you know, there's days where it's just her and Simone Manuel, and they get in the water, and those are the days they go. They're there at six a.m. And then there's the days where they practice with the team. And I, you know, I don't know. I, when, when I say 
I never wake up and go, crap, I got to go to work. I don't know that she has too many moments where she goes, crap, I got to go get in the pool for two hours. I think she really, really loves it. Which you know in swimming is not always the case. A lot of kids, they burn out. I see it at the college level. A oh, lot it's of kids, hard. It's, it's, it's a monotonous, I call it a, a, uh, a pain sport. Like American wrestling is a pain sport. American football is a pain sport. Uh, cross country, uh, these sports that are, re- tennis is a pain sport. Like they're really hard on your body physically, but also the mental and emotional monotony of those sports uh, to just stay in your lane and just do your job uh, is is really difficult. And look, I don't know Michael Phelps. I don't know Katie, but you know, you could, Michael has gone through, uh, he's been open about it, you know, battling depression and you know, you could see him not always loving swimming. I mean, he, he's been open. There are times where he didn't think he'd come back for another Olympics. Uh, Andre Agassi wrote this amazing book called open where at the end of every chapter he says, I hate tennis. Like he genuinely did not like it for a lot and then developed a love hate relationship with it. With Katie from an outside looking in, it's hard to imagine her burning out from swimming. Am I missing it? Am I not seeing it? I don't know. That would be, you know, certainly a question for her. I feel like when she, when she's done with the sport, she'll be done with the sport. Um, whatever that is, I, you know, I don't, foresee it anytime soon i mean she's just continuing to to do her thing but um you know i I think that she loves the process she loves putting in the work and getting better um she loves competing um so i don't see it ending anytime soon i mean i know her eyes are on 2020 in the tokyo games and you know world championships you know this year um yeah, I really think she she loves it all. I mean, and now she's chosen to do it professionally, obviously, and start to capitalize on her talents and her hard work, and that's great. So I want to end with you. Uh, talk about your business now. Uh, talk about Healthy Baller. Talk about the gym. Um, what are you up to now? And then also, you know, let us know where we can find you and, and learn about your work. Uh, just give a megaphone to Lee Summers, uh, Inc. or brand or whatever it is sure. that, that is your business. Yeah. So for 14 years, I was a director with Sport and Health uh, up here, in, well, some in Tyson, some in Bethesda, um, and you know, managing a fitness department, doing education for the company and leadership, and and you know, growing growing programs. Uh, and at a certain point, uh, my vision um, and kind of my my ideals didn't really match with the, the new ownership of that company. So I decided to start my own thing. Uh, as I as I alluded to earlier, it going out and starting my own business has certainly allowed me to be an even more present uh, and active father um, where I get to do things with my kids that I wouldn't have otherwise gotten to do working for someone else, uh, which was one of the biggest um, kind of bonuses or one of the biggest drivers of this decision. Um, I've started um, a company called Purpose Personal Fitness. Um, you can find uh, the website, which is now developed and starting to to grow a little bit, is PPF dash fitness.com. Um, and I run a good deal of it out of healthy baller, um, in the North Bethesda Rockville area, um, with some people that I do see eye to eye with and that, you know, allow me to run my business, but I'm also a part of theirs and, and hopefully really get to, to grow their business, both, um, in who we bring in and also just in name recognition and growing, um, you know, kind of the perception of that company. Um, healthy baller is a great place. Um, the guys that own it, uh, Blair O'Donovan, who's now the head strength coach for the Wizards, and um, Matt Boyd, who I had working for me at Sport and Health for a couple of years, um, are fantastic people, are great at what they do, and uh, are very open to me kind of helping you know grow my business within their business. Um, I work with, with all types of athletes and all types of clientele. I still maintain all of my adult clientele, both master swimmers, um, USTA tennis players, um, chronic pain, uh, patient slash clients, um, just people, you know, general health and wellness, um, clientele, triathletes. Uh, but then I have the, the part of my business that has grown the most, obviously swimmers, um, is working with teams, uh, currently working with both nation's capital swim club out, uh, out of Georgetown prep and RMSC, uh, swim club out of, uh, the Rockville area. Um, and then other swimmers coming to visit me or train, you know, one-on-one or in small groups with me. Um, it's been amazing. It's been the, one of the best moves I ever made. Um, and it's continuing to grow and I'm really, really loving what I'm doing. Yeah. And for those that don't know, Washington DC in particular has some of the best swimmers 
in the world, not just Katie. There's a lot of it's become a hotbed for swimmers, and and Lee's worked with uh, some of the best uh, elite swimmers in the world, and we've actually shared clients as well. So, uh, where can people find you on social media? Um, Lee Summers PT, um, which is uh, um, for Instagram. Uh, I don't do a whole lot on Twitter. Um, and then, um, you can just find me on Facebook as Lee Summers. Awesome. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson and then intentional underscore performers on Instagram. Lee, great to know your story and learn more about you and looking forward to many more conversations in the future. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much, Brian. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to intentional performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. You know, when there's 15 kids who are coming to see you athletes that are very high performers that want to get their careers to a certain place and they're waking up at that same time to see you and and, and go through what you're going to take them through that means a lot to me I, I take a lot of pride in that and um it, it gets me fired up I you know I walk in the door fired up I turn on the lights in the place I get everything up and running I get things prepared for them and and that means a lot to me that you know they will they're never there before me. And I have some kids that have a 5.30 session. They're there at 5.10, wait, you know, ready to go. I don't ever want them beating me there. Um, I want them to, to feel that, you know, their coach is, their coach is right, there, right there with them, you know, in the trenches and, and cares that much that, that this is something to be taken seriously and, and to be focused on.